Welcome to Vision of Zion. I'm Craig Perry, and with me today is my guest, Sean White. How are you doing, Sean? Hi, Craig. Great. Thanks for having me. We wanted to talk about our experience going to uh, be among the Hopi with a lot of other volunteers in the first week of December of 2023. So today's January the 7th, 2024, so we're looking back almost a month. We don't want any more time to pass before we have a chance to talk about our experience. So this was my second time going there, and this was Sean's first time. We both we brought our wives. I brought my son and a girlfriend, his girlfriend, along with us as well. And Sean, why don't you just describe uh, what it was like for the first time going down to the Hopi Reservation, or we call it Hopi Land? I'd heard about this from you about four years previously, and uh, had longed and prayed to be able to have this opportunity to go with you. And it was such a surprise to have you call and say you were got an opening for you to go. I was just elated to be able to go down and enjoy this. And uh, as we we decided we were going to join together and bring some coal down. And, uh, you know, you missed our challenges of having flat tires and things and worried about being on time. We were very surprisingly on time and even had an hour to get ready for our Kiva experience. So okay. I, yes, I got a call from, I'd been there uh, just before COVID. So <clears> it's <throat> been, I think three years and uh, Mike Sweat, who is a big integral part of putting on this volunteer group has been going down there for uh, many years. I think he said 27 or 28 years. It began when he served as a missionary in the, in that mission and served among the Hopi. And I'm assuming a few years later came back to it, decided, Hey, I something I really want to do help out my people his because he loves them. He actually was adopted into the tribe and is considered Hopi now. But as a result, I think of his efforts, uh, maybe in combination, I don't know if, I don't know the whole story. We'll get Mike on to tell the story sometime, You're but a, a group of people from Northern Utah, I know they come from other places as well. Uh, Arizona and maybe Nevada, but a, quite a few people get involved in donating things around Christmas time for the Hopi. So my wife, my daughter and I went down there in December of 2019, just before COVID hit. And we were informed later that no one was allowed on the reservation later because of the potential for catching COVID from outsiders. And in fact, we learned uh, some sad information on this trip that many of the Hopi uh, did die as a result of the COVID situation. <clears throat> to give you an idea of numbers, as I visited with one clan, he said, we started, went into COVID with my clan of 168. And when the COVID was over, we were at 68 members. Oh, I didn't know those numbers. <laughs> asked just unbelievable and then to go from 12 chiefs to two chiefs and all the implications that that has with it of losing prayers losing patterns for each of the clans that they held so sacred and they weren't planning on these people dying so they didn't memorize the younger generation didn't memorize the prayers and the dances and have the stories all down so they've just been decimated in that way I wish we had time to talk about all of those things you just said. There's a lot there you just packed in about clans who can tell which stories, how the ceremonies are passed down, 
we we will do a lot more on the Hopi in the future because a lot of what you touched on is important for us. And why is it important for us? Because the Hopi have a lot of prophecy built into their um, traditions. And those prophecies are coming to pass now. And it's important to review what they've said over the last few years because they have been permitted or decided to come out and talk about these prophecies. Uh, it's so interesting as we're working on Isaiah prophecies and stuff to see the connection of our stories to the blue Cochina and the red Cochina and the different things. I can now see the connection of what they're trying to say, what their elders had been warning them about that we have in Isaiah. So we'll focus in this podcast about our experience going down there. So what I learned is that we were allowed to go down there again. Apparently we could have gone down there in the last few years since COVID, but I know I couldn't make it last year, but maybe I could have even gone during the COVID years, but it sounded like we couldn't. That's what we were told. We were mis maybe misinformed. So what Mike told me and, and, uh, and, Dennis Parker, who also uh, I know from my hometown, is that we were being invited by one of the owners of one of the kivas to a, to go into a kiva on this occasion, uh, December 2023. And I was so excited because I had heard this is extremely rare to let outsiders go into the into, into these uh, kivas. And in fact, Mike Sweat said on a two or three times to me and to the group, you don't know how rare this is. You don't know how lucky you are to be doing this. So the first weekend in December, we went down there and people bring things. And one of the things that was lacking was, uh, was coal. And coal is used as a part of their ceremonies during the month of December. So... Thanks to Sean, we got something going with the coal. Uh, Sean got the coal arranged. We picked some up in Kanab. I was able to secure a, a dump trailer from a friend of mine. And we both felt impressed to ask people to help us with either the financing or with the equipment to do to make this happen. So we brought down, what was it, Sean, about a, about a ton of coal? We're at two and a quarter tons of coal. That's right, two and a quarter. So uh, a couple of donors helped pay for that. And then the trailer was donated for use. And so we arrived there Friday and at around four o'clock on Friday, we were scheduled to go to this Kiva. So we all got together and the, the name of the city that we stayed at is called Tuba city. That's just on the, well, it's, it's not on the reservation, but there is a Hopi community or a Hopi clan. A yellow fox clan, correct? Yes. And they're located in Monkopi, right next to Tuba City, like I'd say within a within a mile's range of, of uh, Tuba City. I want you to describe what happened from there, Sean. Uh, we lined up and got ready to go in there with our vehicles and parked, and we were led in as a group into a side side door to go into this dwelling under the earth there it's domed and ridged with timbers above it to hold the earth back 
and we had benches uh, built in the wall all the way around the room. It was enough. And then they put up some chairs. It was enough that we actually sat 83 people inside, which was just historic. And we sat there for two and a, two hours and were taught about the Hopi way and what they used the kivas for. And to me, it became very apparent that it was like a religious building or a religious chapel for them. And especially like for the men to... Uh, have prayers and to think about what's ahead of them and to rejuvenate their spirit. And uh, he emerged from there. During the time that we were in there, though, toward the end, to cut short a little bit, uh, they had a prayer for us. And uh, it was so beautiful and flowing in their language. And just uh, we were all so deeply touched. And then... Um, one of the brethren in the closing of ours, they allowed him to do a prayer in there, which we think was probably the very first uh, Christian-type prayer done in there. And uh, a dear friend of ours got up and spoke for a few minutes, who always is has beautiful words and described how we were all one children under God, which it just it brought tears to my eyes, and, and it just felt the spirit of how we really were all born children under God and connected and trying to reach him. It was a beautiful, they hold sacred ceremonies in these kivas. Of course, we were not in a sacred ceremony. We were in a sacred space. Uh, the, the owner of the kiva was there. It had been passed down to him by his uncle. Another interesting issue is how they passed down their traditions their dances they they go from uh the man in charge to to a, a a nephew and it's it's hard to pick somebody who's willing to commit their lives to uh own the kiva to run the kiva and you could tell from some of his comments that it's difficult today to find the right person to take it over in fact he hasn't found the right person yet among his family to take that kiva over one interesting things was, and I had a hard time grasping it at first, is why they wouldn't pick their own son. And uh, as I visited with him afterwards, and he says, well, if it was your own son you were teaching and bringing up, sometimes you would cut corners and they wouldn't learn as well. So within our people, we are, teach our brother's son. And that way, everything is more straight and more clear and more valued by teaching one of our brother's sons and bringing them up properly through that. But there's so many prayers to be memorized and so many intricacies that they don't have written down, which are only verbal, which uh, carries a huge load to them to memorize everything verbally. So there are within various communities, there are various clans and the clans have their own traditions and only clan members can share those traditions and, and pass them on. It's a very interesting, uh, I, I'm reading a, quite a bit about it. So again, we'll save some of this for later and we'll get Mike Sweat on here as well to talk about it because he's been an, initiated into the, into the Hopi and no, has 30 years of knowledge plus years. 
a clan, just for our listeners, would be representative of a matriarchal order. So they're grouped together by, like, if you marry a woman of another clan, then you would go to that clan to be a part of hers because the, it stays with the women, and the women own any property that's there. Men don't own property. And so it creates a, that'd be a whole another talk in and of itself, but it's through the matriarchal line that the clans are formed. It kind of felt like going into the Kiva, these are underground, some are circular, some are rectangular. This one was rectangular. Uh, it had a dirt floor and seating around that whole perimeter. And then they brought in some seats at the, at the front of the room. Uh, inside of there, there are some sacred things. There's an altar. There's a, a spot where they represent them coming out of the ground, how the Hopi came to be was coming out of the ground, the Mother Earth. And then there's a ladder which leads out of the top of the kiva, and that represents the birth canal. And we all had a chance to walk out of, on the ladder out through the top, which was really, to me, uh, one of the one one of the highlights. Hearing this man uh, pray in the Hopi tongue was amazing, and then he translated, I think, for us, and then allowing a Christian brother to pray. One of the things that stuck out to me was the very beginning. He said. When the Hopi pray in these sacred ceremonies, they're not praying for themselves. They're praying for the whole world. They are yeah. focused on trying to save the planet, save the world, and they pray for the betterment of all people throughout the world. And they're very concerned about how we have treated Mother Earth and how we need to get back to the old ways. Again, we won't talk about that now uh, in the detail, but it was, uh, Mike again said, Quote, you don't know how lucky you are to be here. I only know of four or five, I think he said, you know, outsiders or white people who have ever been in a Kiva in his whole life. And here we were, 80 plus in this room together, all these volunteers. And this this man thanked us for the service. People brought food, they brought clothing, they brought all wood. kinds of things, wood. And then, of course, the coal, uh, the wood for the fires. I'm going to, this is just an example of a donation. Someone cut some wood down from their their ranch and brought these beautiful pieces of red cedar. And some volunteers came out, started cutting the wood down, working into the night. This is a whole other stack of wood. And they loaded up this trailer full of wood. This is us going to this place in Kanab and getting the two and a half or two and a quarter tons of coal so they could use it in their ceremonies. Again, the trailer was donated uh, by a friend to haul it down there. And then um, this is an example of it being dumped in there before we took off and headed south. This is a picture, and you can see everything, right? Sean, you can see Along okay. the yeah, along the ridge line there, some homes. Yeah, up here, these are homes up on that ridge. This is actually a video. Let me see if I can play it. There's a road right here. It's us going up to First Mesa, I believe. That's right, First Mesa. <clears throat> lots and lots of cars. Okay, so that was us going up there. 
this is an example of uh, when we would pull over the U-Haul and these wonderful volunteers who had donated the food, people would come out from their dwellings for some food for the holidays. This is another location. I think this is Third Mesa, right. where we a lot of stuff was dropped off, a lot of clothing donations. Uh, food, clothes, and fuel. That's what they were, what Mike said they needed. So that's what people brought up there. A lot of people that have asked me questions of why do they need so much? And uh, in recent years, their coal mine that has provided them work and money on the reservation has been shut down because of the Obama and Biden policies and uh, the two power plants, which provided work in the area and things have also been shut down. And so it's become quite depressed and it made it hard for them to bring in money at this time. And that's why they're needing more than normal as they try to figure out and stabilize what they're doing there. Uh, another picture here. I just love these little kids. Let me tell you what, when they see a toy, some of them that maybe their only toy they have. And, and these kids were so cute, little carrying this little stuffed animal. I'm not sure if it was a monkey or what it was, but she walked all over the place with that little, little doll. Bring that more into the center of the picture. Yeah, there's a good one. So this is us, uh, our group, uh, Carol, uh, Sean's wife and Sean and myself, my wife, Mackenzie, and my son, Jacob. Uh, we have, this is a Jacob Lake heading back uh, the next day, which is Saturday. Had a little burger and some food there at Jacob Lake. And had saw a lot of really cool Native American art throughout there, Hopi and uh, Navajo. Yeah, very good stuff. So going back to that morning, this is us. Uh, standing outside of one of Leo's dwellings. Leo, I believe, is the uh, leader of this group on the on the first mesa. Is that your understanding, too? Yes, so, he was the chief of that mesa. And he's uh, he made me feel very tall. The, a lot of these people are not very uh, not very very tall, but uh, he survived uh, COVID. His wife did not. Um, if you could put your uh, pointer right on him versus um, that help people. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's a good idea. And then to, to the, to the right of the picture is where we dumped the coal for the people on first Mesa to come get for the ceremonies. And to Leo's uh, right, our left is uh, Dennis Parker. He's one of the ones that got me uh, interested and, and invited and going up, to the Hopi land, hopefully for many, many more years to come. It was a great experience. So just a few pictures of, of our, of our experience uh, going there. And Sean, tell everybody how you feel about wanting to go back to Hopi land in the future. Oh, I'm just so yearning to go back and meet these people when they, Hopi means small, peaceful people. And that is so reminiscent of them. Um, you know, we were even surprised, for instance, the dogs. As we were sitting at the gas station, usually they were hungry and looking for food. 
And they would, you know, typically you'd think, oh, they'll be fighting each other for food. They'll be pushing one another aside and everything. No, they were not. They made sure every one of their dog friends got a treat, even the lame ones and so forth. They were so sharing. And I think dogs are often a representative of how an owner is or how the people are. And uh, really a good reflection back. Now, going up on First Mesa on Saturday morning the, after we visited Leo there was such a treat. Now, we had, were given guidance before we went out to the village that is further out. Hard to comprehend that old of a village and that old of a buildings. It's a very narrow little land bridge as we go out there. And uh, we were warned not to pick up our cell phones, to touch our cell phones. If we needed pictures of this area, we could go to the internet and find some. But it really looks and feels like you're walking into old Jerusalem. It does. And uh, as my wife went around, uh, we went around the one side. She, I looked at her, and she was just crying and trembling. And she goes, Sean, I don't know why, but I feel the spirit here so strongly. And uh, we were by the area of the the tunnel going through and as we went around and came to the other side we got to know an archaeologist there and he told us about visiting with uh, eight or nine of the Hopi chiefs before COVID and he said that he, after he'd gone through several initiations and ceremonies and things he was trusted enough that they could talk to him and he showed this place to us where the Savior came for two days and were with the people there. And that was just opposite the side of where Carol had started crying and says, I don't know why I'm crying. And then showed us where the Savior had slept that night. And um, it was just so beautiful to think about that. And, of course, this would have been in Book of Mormon times after he visited them in the land bountiful, you know, 3rd Nephi chapter area and uh, taught the people. I've got a book called He Walked the Americas, which testifies further of how many different peoples he visited there. And as we came around, we were so humbled, and then we began to open the vehicles up and to start passing out things. And we were going to be going to three mesas, so we had to be careful not to pass out everything on one stop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> save some for the others. Um Man, there's so many stories we can tell. I'm trying to uh, pick through the ones that I've oh. learned through my two uh, visits there. Um, there, It's such a humble place. So uh, let me say this. As Sean said, there are three mesas. Those are the main hubs of where the clans have, uh, have uh, lived and congregate. And the first mesa is the one I've spent the most time on so far and heard the most, learned the most about. It's kind of divided in three sections. Uh, but in the top section where Carol had that experience and where this man showed us where he believed, well, where the Savior appeared and then where the Savior even may have stayed for a while, which he'd walked us up there and showed us that spot. Anyway, he uh has been down there a lot. He's been down to South uh, Central America like 53 times or something, maybe more. I, I think I lost track of how many times he's been down there because he's interested in the relationship between the Book of Mormon, between uh, Native Americans and, and the migration of these people to these mesas. 
Anyway, that last part is the most ancient part where you don't take the photographs without permission. And they don't have running water. And as Sean, I don't know if I've told you this yet, but as I've read these, some of these books, they've been, and, and there's videos also, this isn't just me. You can go check this out on Hopi prophecies in YouTube, but they talk about how they've been warned that if they were to have running water in their homes, someday the water will be bad and, and things will fail them. So they've learned and been told not to become dependent on modern conveniences so that when the times are bad and the water gets bad, that they won't be harmed or damaged in some way from, or be too reliant if these things are taken away someday. So for that reason, the most ancient parts of the cities uh, were, and communities have not uh, allowed uh, electricity, for example, where on the lower parts of that mesa, you'll see there's some, there are some amenities. Now, we went to the second Mesa. Uh, I'll tell this because Sean may not, but Sean and his wife, Carol, uh, have uh, beehives in northern Utah. And they brought down many, many jars of honey. That And I remember over the summer looking at them working hard. It's not an easy job to collect honey in the summer. You've got to, you know, use a heat. A tool to cut off the wax then you've got to spin the those uh frames, of, frames and extract the honey and i'm no i don't know all the stuff because i've never done it before but then they eventually they get into a beautiful jar with a label on it and when i felt impressed to invite sean and carol down because i did i just said oh i mean as soon as i heard that we could go into Akiva. I was, oh my goodness, I've, I've got to go. And then the next thought I had was, do you have space for more? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, yeah, you can bring a few friends, maybe five or six. So I, then I just felt like, oh, I've got to get hold of Sean and Carol. So Sean and Carol, uh, not only did they uh, arrange for coal to be delivered and picked up, they also brought uh, their, uh, they brought clothes, people, uh, Sean talked more to that, but people who felt impressed to, to hang on to clothes for whatever reason. And then Sean and Carol brought this honey. And so when we got to the second Mesa, this uh, one man who'd been there many times, this archaeologist who'd been down to South America, his name is Greg. Uh, he said, if you want to have a great experience, because we we're down at the lower part of the second Mesa, one of those pictures where everybody was milling around. He said, if you want to have a great experience, why don't you walk up? to the old part, you know, where they don't have the electricity, they don't have the water, uh, and and pass out your honey. Or he said, grab something, go pass it out. Well, he didn't know we had the honey that Sean and Carol had brought. So we loaded up our, our uh, pockets and our coats and grabbed as many jars as we could in our backpacks. And Sean, why don't you take it from there? Um, we kind of didn't know where to go for the trail, but I just... We walked toward a certain area and I saw some people and asked them how we could get up there and of course gave them honey on the way. And we took a zigzaggy trail up um, over 200 feet to get up to the next level. And then as we stopped there, we just said, you know, you, do, you go this way and you go this way. And the six of us just divided among the mace up there and started knocking on doors and uh, 
the response was unbelievable. The first store I was impressed to go to, a wonderful older lady came to the door and um, she was like, I've got, I said, I've got some money here. And she's like, well, how much do I owe you? Oh no, no, this is a Christmas present. And of course I was out of breath after, you know, I've had part of my lung out this year and breathing heavy. And I said, I'm sorry for breathing so hard. I just, you know, I've had part of my lung out. And she says, oh, I know. Since during COVID, I had to have part of mine taken out too. I didn't know that. And um, she, um, was like I could I would love to give you some water and have you just sit down with me and she says but I don't have any water and oh my heart broke because she was waiting for somebody to bring her up some water she had no water and I, what I would have given to have had some water in my pocket that I could have given to her I just uh, that really haunts me that I you know and such basic things and she wanted me to sit with her, and I, you know, I says well, I need to get out and give your neighbors and stuff some that are up here. See, there were many people that didn't come down that day because, to the lower part, to have food passed out to them and stuff because they, they weren't feeling well. They didn't have the strength, and uh, they it's didn't a quite feel a hike. hard. Yeah, and uh, so as we got up there, you know, and stuff, and to divide it, it was just such a wonderful experience. There was a little. A uh, gal younger in her twenties that came out between the buildings, and I asked her if she'd got any honey yet. No, and she was just kind of like flabbergasted to see us up there, just kind of shocked. And then, as we kind of reunited and got together at one house, it turns out this fellow is charge of uh, the fruit ceremony in August, and he says you know, honey is a part of this ceremony. And I had no idea how I was going to have enough honey. And we unloaded like six or more jars there to him <laughs> to help him out. And he tried to, you know, we did buy some wares that he had made from him, but he didn't have simple things like a magnet to put on the back for a refrigerator or a pin to put on your shirt. And Carol was just like, oh, my crafts kit, I've got hundreds of these at home and if i had known i would have brought them for him you know because they're lacking just basic things to uh put on their wares to have them for sale and uh so emmett there had invited us back in august to come watch him do the fruit ceremony which we were trying to figure out how we can do this and how we can have permission to come back. It is going to. It would be a very special experience to watch him do this with our honey. And uh, then we had to hurry down because we didn't know how fast the group was going to be moving on to third mesa there. But um, that was a great description. Uh, I don't know how you made it up there <laughs> with with your cane and and the and the packages. I don't know how you got up there the way that you did. <laughs> But it was very, very, it was very, very cool that you did that. And uh, the honey, boy, yeah, talk about uh, being at the right place at the right time uh, to watch that man's face. And he told me the same exact uh, account at a different moment because we were one of the others that stopped by and knocked on the same door and heard him say that. And then to watch him bring out these artistic pieces he was trying to to make so he could sell them and make some money. 
And like you said, lacked some of just the basic stuff to even, I mean, there's nothing up there. And you look around the mesas and there's nothing around the, really there's, it's a very barren country uh, where they decided to, um, well, actually they didn't decide to as much as they were told to go here to settle. Um, that's a whole nother story about who directed them to go settle this area, how long they were supposed to stay there and the kinds of laws and, and practice that they're supposed to engage in while they were to remain in this area. Uh, I would I invite all of, you know, as I sat there that day after, at the end of the day, and I was thinking to myself, what am I in my life doing to prepare to meet the Savior? You know, it they're so dedicated to following these laws and these things to prepare themselves for the meeting of the Savior. And yet, in my life, I was trying to analyze, what am I doing? And then the simple things of sitting down that night and having a glass of water at our table that we take so freely without even thinking about it and how precious that was to have water up there even so true well they are very dedicated to and and truthfully there's a struggle in these communities because there are many they're trying to keep to the old ways but there's a lot of problems that we've introduced into their culture uh alcohol, drugs, um, diabetes, they're, they're struggling. These communities are struggling and they're struggling hard. As you pointed out, what started off as a communities with 12 chiefs are down to two and they're, they're at the tail end and about to lose because uh, I'm not sure if you said this, but when one of those chiefs dies, the knowledge that they had dies with them if it isn't passed on and they're down to two of them now out of 12. So, you know, it's, I thought of smallpox hitting the Indians in the early days and how decimating it was. And after we were through that experience, I could definitely see that it hit that population and their genetics way harder than our populations. It, it's reminded me a lot of the smallpox. Yeah, this this swept through the communities. They lost a lot of their uh, tribal leaders, a lot of the elderly. It hit them very, very hard. Um, uh, I was so glad to see Leo. Leo, when I was there the first time, he was breathing out of a tube, uh, a tracheotomy. And to talk, he has to kind of plug it and then talk so the water, the, the air goes through his vocal cords. So he was in that state already in 2019 and he still made it through, but his, unfortunately his wife did not make it through. Um, up on the top Mesa in the first Mesa, they've got, they've got several Kivas just at the top there that they, where they worship very, very high up off the ground down below. It's uh, we've got some footage because what happened the following week, or maybe it was postponed because of the weather they had, uh, they had this, uh, I wish I remembered the name of the operation, fly, but a fly-in. They have a fly-in where I, how many planes do they have? It was over 50, 50 planes. What? 53 planes that sat down, I think for five or six communities. So not only the Hopi, but the Navajo out there too. So these private plane owners, they fly in like Santa Claus, you know, 
with these uh, boxes of supplies. I'm not sure what they're bringing. Do you know what they have in there? They had a lot box? of wa crates of water within them and clothing and, um, you know, things like cereal and, and stuff like that to carry with them. And they were actually needing volunteers to help unload these planes in each of the areas. So planes could go from location to location really fast where it'd take hours and hours on the ground. And so at each location, they were needing help to unload the planes and get the needed supplies up to the Mesa because there's no way to land up there. I mean, so narrow. <laughs> Mike has sent us some video of the flying my favorite one is as they're flying past First Mesa. Uh, First Mesa, you can't even tell there's structures up there if you didn't know what you were looking for because they're they're very small. They have the same color as the the Mesa top. But to have them do a flyby was really really neat. Um, I didn't tell you this, Sean, but the first time I was there, uh, the federal government was using land right next to the first mesa for bombing practice oh. and they would fly over the first mesa extremely low and buzz that city and then drop their payloads i don't know if they were dropping bombs per se i don't i can't say that but they were practice bombing runs and they would they would intentionally fly right over the mesas that mesa and then drop their i don't know if they were sandbags or real weapons i don't know I, I think they were probably maybe sandbags but they would do that and fly as close as they could uh the history of our government and how we treated native americans is deplorable i i don't know how else to explain it and it wasn't just them it was the spaniards before that and then it was other tribal people coming in that area it's not just one thing but we were for some reason we were just hell-bent on integrating them into our society the way that we think and believe. And there was an incredible amount of pressure put on the Hopi to integrate. And Even in uh, 1593, by the Spanish coming in, they, you know, that's not talked about a lot, but the Spanish tried to convert them to Catholicism, not understanding that they were already worshiping in their own way God. And they began to even rape and murder the women and the children over there. That's when they decided they need to rise up. It says, yes, we are a small, peaceful people, but when we are pushed and shoved, we will stand up. And they had, drove off and massacred a large number of Spanish there so that they might have freedom from raping their wives and killing their children. They tried to get them off the reservations, our, our government, to put them into these boarding schools, which were not really boarding schools. They were, they, they felt they were detention camps. And uh, they tried to force the Hopi to sign a treaty. They refused to sign any treaties. They never have signed treaties with any foreign entity. Uh, they've just resisted, resisted, resisted. And uh, one of the main leaders he talks about, he was thrown in jail for like seven years. Country. Thank you so much, Craig. This was such a choice experience of my life of going down there and experiencing this. It really helped me renew my relationship with the Savior and and my thoughts of preparing for his return.
All right. Well, until next time, this has been Vision of Zion. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye.